Father God in heaven, most high, invincible, almighty El Shaddai, we seek you tonight. And we ask that tonight our hearts and our minds could be open to receive every bit of what you intend in this time. So God, please, profoundly, radically, personally, speak to each of us right where we need to hear you tonight. Please, let us hear you and know you and love you better. And God, I pray that tonight here in this room, that you would speak fluent us, bespoke a word to each of us, or more than one. But God, that we would take every warning. You've told us that the things that were written before were written for our learning. And you've told us that there were things that should warn us, that we should not lust after the same things that the <coughs> Israelites will lusted after in the wilderness. And that we, through patient continuance, would receive the exhortation and the equipping and the challenging and the correction, the very things that you've ordained your word to be to each of us. But Lord, if we just got more information tonight, we could expect to simply get puffed up. But you've told us in your word that knowledge in and of itself uniquely and exclusively puffs up, but love edifies. So tonight, we want to love you more. We want that to be the product. We want our hearts to swell with adoration to you. And in that, inform us. Teach us, correct us, rebuke us, challenge us, equip us for every good work. Have your way, God, I pray. I just love you so much, Lord, and I thank you for what you're going to do now. Redeem now these next 45 minutes and redeem them in a way that you would be completely and absolutely exalted and that we would find ourselves exactly where you want us. So we give you these now, our breaths, our time. May we worship you, Lord, with our attention. May we worship you with our intention to apply these things, with our retention to hold on to them, and our expectation that you would, God, inculcate these things into us by the power of your Spirit, that we, through your Spirit, would live them out. The things that we've taken as warnings, Lord, may we take proper correction. And may we walk out of here so encouraged today. So, God, we commit this time to you, every moment of it. Breathe life, Lord. May your word burst open and come alive in me. You captivate us in your word now. Captivate us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. If your life were an icon, what would it be? <clears throat> Many apps these days demand it. You have this option when you sign on to Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or whatever the case is to choose an icon. And I know several of you have done that. That icon could be everything from a unicorn to a fairy to a picture of a moose wearing a hat. I mean, it's a, it, you can pick just about anything. And if you were to say, I mean, if your life, if you were to look at your life as a, in summation, and there was one icon, one image that was so profound and meaningful that people looked and said, oh, clearly that's it. What would it be? 
For Michael Jordan, perhaps it's that moment when he's about five or six feet, two meters in the air, legs spread, tongue hanging out, with that hand reaching out like he's about to, to sort of slam dunk the moon. And that moment, it becomes iconic in our eyes. For Jack Nicholson, or Nicholas, the actor, whichever one that is. I know the other one is a golfer who just passed away. The moment, perhaps, when he's standing there with the knife in The Shining, for whatever reason, that becomes iconic. We kind of know that's him. What would be your thing? My prayer is tonight we would make the kind of choices that would make an icon that would be meaningful. And we know that there are iconic moments in our life. Moments that we would say these are the landmarks that in essence help define who we are today. Some of them perhaps great victories. Moments that we look back at and go, yes, what a great moment. What a choice that was to make. And I'm so glad. Like prayerfully, all of you will when you leave here today thinking about the fact that you chose to come to this study tonight. There are other moments we look at with great regret. Moments that really, to be honest, defined where our mindset was and perhaps even portrayed the deception we were trying to live out to think we were okay when we weren't. Those moments when we kind of realized that the lying facades we had placed upon ourselves were being shattered and we were really coming in a head-on collision face-to-face with who we really are. Tonight we have that with Saul. What would his be? The story of Saul's life is really one of a real great tragedy because he was a man with a fantastic calling, but no consecration. Now, what would you put as an icon for that? He had an iconically good moment, if you will, one chapter. That's really all he gets. That's very decent. He was called to be king when the people, turning their back on God being their king, demanded a king and said, we want a king to be like all the other nations, that he'd go fight our battles, that he would represent us, that he would go before us. I mean, all of the things that we would want a king for when we turn our backs on God, when we turn from the invisible, mortal God to something tangible because we say we need that instead. We know why we do that. Now, Saul was met with great mixed reviews from the very beginning. There were some who were not interested, though he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Seemingly the great guy to lead you into battle. Until, of course, the battle of a town called Yabesh Gilead. Try not to forget that. It starts with a J, and the Hebrew J sounds like a Y, like Yeshua, Yehoshua, Jesus. Yabesh Gilead, by the way, was a town, by the way, that at one time had only been completely decimated by civil war. And the virgin girls that were left in the town were actually taken to populate, the, if you will, to rebuild the entire tribe of Benjamin that had been completely almost vanquished because of the rebellion against the rest of the people and God himself. Now, there was a man named Achash, or serpent, if you, if you will, this is what a name means, who comes to challenge them. And Saul comes to their rescue and rescues Yabesh Gilead. Saul, by the way, is from the tribe of Benjamin. But that unconsecrated heart of his will start to surface, and they surface in three really iconic moments. Forgive me again, like I said, a prologue leading up to this chapter. Three very iconic moments in Saul's life. The first of them, for which, for, by the way, each of which God will quickly rebuke. In the first case, if you will, the Philistines are approaching the perennial enemy of Israel, The battle is impending and seems imminent. And Saul at that point is looking for Samuel the prophet to make the sacrifice. It is Samuel's job to make that sacrifice. But Saul, fearing the people running from him, fearing the impending enemy approaching, takes what only the priest could do 
and takes it upon himself to perform himself. And if you will, in essence, what he does is he squelches God's grace to say, I will do myself what only you can do, God. Strange as it is, of course, and like some of us, the moment you start doing the wrong thing, you get caught. Had you done it five minutes before, when you started thinking about it, it seems like you thought you would have gotten away with it. And for some reason, God loves you so much, you just can't get away with anything. And that certainly is Saul's life. So there is Saul right in the middle of sacrifice, and Samuel shows up and says, Sam, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? That is not yours to handle. That sacrifice is to be handled by someone God-ordained, and it is not you. So from this point on, you've lost your legacy. There will never be another son in your lineage who will be king. So I lost that, as if you will, he completely belittled God's grace. The second then, Saul is in hot pursuit of those Philistines, and he makes a ridiculous oath. He tells everyone, no one can eat anything until we fully vanquish my enemies. His enemies, not the enemies of God here, but his now. And whoever breaks this vow will die. And who does? His own son unaware of this foolish oath because his son was the one who went after the Philistines in the first place, takes his staff, puts it in the, in the honey, puts it to his face, and then the men say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, your dad's going to kill you now. And, and by the way, when someone says that, usually that's kind of hyperbole. This was actually literal. Dad's going to kill you now. And he's like, my dad, what is he doing? She realized, look at how my eyes brighten the moment I did this. And this father of his that's supposed to be so generous to give whatever is necessary for the battle instead has put restrictions on the people. He's not an actually generous father, but instead he's a taking father at this point. Certainly an iconic moment. And from that, he gets rebuked by his own son, if you will. Third, God has now spoken directly and tells him, by the way, listen and listen closely. By the way, when God says listen closely, it's time to stop everything else. You shouldn't be texting another person or thinking of anything else when God says. And and the word behold is that, by the way, in Scripture. God says stop everything and consider this. It's time now to bring recompense upon the Amalekites for the the way that they attacked us at the Valley of Rephidim as the nation Israel escaped from Egypt. So leave nothing. Wipe it all out. And, and, and the Melchites will be, in many ways, if you will, will be a very type or a, a metaphor, if you will, for the flesh in our own life. The flesh life that Romans 6 and 7 tells us needs to be completely put to death so that God's life could be lived through us. That selfish, self-driven, self-centered, fleshly life is to be laid to rest. That's the one that, by the way, that hung on the cross when Jesus hung for us, was buried when Jesus was buried so that the resurrected life of Christ could be lived in us. And we want the power of God's resurrection. We just don't want death before that. But let's be honest, you can't have a resurrection without a death. Any marriage is two deaths and a resurrection, if you think about it. The death of two single people and the resurrection of one unified couple. And if you don't have those deaths, you will never have a happy marriage. And the same way, what we find is, is that Saul spares the king. He sets free, if you will, the king, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to get, if you will, a monument made with him with his head, with stepping, the proud, if you will, trophy 
of looking with me, stepping on the head of the king. Interestingly enough, if you go to Mount Carmel today, the, by the way, it tells us this was done in Carmel. If you go to Mount Carmel today in Israel, there's a place called El Mubarak. It's a place that means the place of burning. It is the place where Elijah stands, Eliyahu, stands against the prophets of Baal in Ashtoreth. It's called the place of burning because, of course, God responds with fire. What I find interesting is they put a statue up at the top there in Carmel. The very same place where Saul had a trophy made for himself. And it's supposed to be the trophy or this statue of Elijah stepping on the neck of one of the prophets of Baal. And I find it fascinating because as I look at that, I can't help but think, well, that's exactly the kind of thing that Saul had made for himself. Him stepping on the neck of King Agag. Three very iconic moments. Consider this. The first, if you will, discarding God's grace for taking the sacrifice in your own hands. The second, seeking not to be the generous father to provide for his son, but rather taking from them heavy restriction upon them. And then the third here, setting free a king that they should never set free and becomes a life of compromise. The last time we saw Saul, by the way, was back in 1 Samuel chapter 28 when Saul was at a seance. Brings up that same Samuel, but now Samuel has passed away. And he comes in and he says this in verse 16. And if you have your Bibles, flip back there with me because now we're almost at our text. In 1 Samuel 28, verse 16, Samuel says, Why then do you ask me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you, into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Now, who wants to hear that kind of prophecy? You realize what he just said. You're going to go to war tomorrow, and you did. You are going to die tomorrow. Have a nice day. I mean, that's obviously the So the last thing we saw a few chapters back is that Saul knows he's got an expiration date and it happens to be tomorrow. Now, how kind of God to give you a day. God could have at any point in this wiped out Saul, but he didn't. And he gives him one more day. I mean, imagine the luxury of God telling you you have this much time to get your house in order. What would you do? The whole time God has been telling Saul, you are fired. Here's your P45 step off the throne. There is somebody else to rightly take the throne, and it is not you. Unfortunately, Saul has no interest in doing that because he's still trying to retain an honor that is not rightly his. So Saul's going to go into battle anyways. Let me ask you, why in the world would Saul go into battle? The only thing I can think of is, well, if he knows he's going to die, he must try to at least die with honor. Because it makes no other sense. The last time we saw David, on the other hand, the replacement for Saul, he had just been in a 16-month backslide. And yet after 16 months, we now see David Philistine-free, the Amalekites that Saul, for instance, was supposed to have wiped out. David is defeated. His dignity is restored. He even gives gifts of that spoil to his friends and family, says 1 Samuel 30. He is aloof from the upcoming battle. 
and all at the simple choice to recommit his life back to the living God. One choice. It wasn't a 15-step process. It was one choice. And that was, you know what? What in the world am I doing? I need to commit my life back to God. Interestingly enough, note by the way, God has pulled David and his men far from this battle, even though David, just a moment ago, if you will, was still part of the Philistines. Note also that restoring David to God did not mean restoring him to Saul. David now is aloof from a battle that will take out Saul and his family. God has already told us that in 1 Samuel 28. And David will not be remotely there to be blamed for it. So this is where we pick it up now on this. These three iconic moments, if you will, dismissing God's grace, not seeking to be a generous father, but rather laying heavy, heavy uh, limitations and standards on others. And then as we look at it here, setting free a king you should never have. King doesn't get far, by the way. Samuel takes care of that. Now, 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboach. Try this word with me. Gilboach. Try that. Give it a try. Galboach. Got to give me that H in there. Some of you know how to pronounce that kind of thing at the end. Gal, by the way, like Galilee, means round or circle. Galilee as a region is a circular region, and thus that's the, why it's called Galilee. Gal, like Galboa, Gal being round, because if you were to look at all of the mountains in the mountainous area that surround the Valley of Jezreel, or if we will, the, mountain of the Valley of Armageddon, same place, the one mountain that would be the easiest to found is Mount Gilboa. And the reason is it looks just like a pimple. It's the one place that is completely round. It looks like fufu. If you've ever been to sort of the uh, Western African region where they serve you things like fufu. And it's like this just round mound. And it's exactly what Gilboa looks like. So they flee to this place. But interestingly enough, though that means round or heap, the word bach, because it's galbach, bach means desire or to gush. In essence, what it means is the mound of desire or the round gushing. So I'm going with mound of desire, which makes a lot of sense that that would be the place Saul would fall. Verse 2, it tells us that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. Now, we do know, by the way, that Jonathan was David's best friend, who David has not seen for quite a while now since he's been running from Saul who's trying to kill him. Now, God could have just told us that he killed, that Saul's sons fell slain. But God took special note to tell us that three sons fell, and he even mentions their names. You've noticed that, right? Now, if you're the kind that's a bit more meticulous like I am in that sense, I like to ask God why. Why did you put their names in in the first place? Why didn't you say Saul's three oldest sons died or whatever? And then I couldn't help but look and go, well, wait a minute here. I know what Jonathan means. Jonathan means God's grace. That's interesting. Instead of Wait a minute. Avinadab, Abba, means father. Avinadab means generous father. And then I look at Mahishua, like Malach, means king. Shua, like Yahushua, like is in salvation. It literally means 
free the king. And I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are the three icons in Saul's life. The three moments of Saul's greatest failure. Well, if you were to put the icons of those things, you would put the icons of your own children. And you realize when Saul took the sacrifice upon himself, he could see the fall of his son. And God even told him, by the way, from this point on, your children will no longer be king. And that would have been Jonathan's job since he's the oldest. Then putting that foolish oath out to not be the generous father, losing the respect of that son. And there's Abinadab. And then setting free King Agag, who doesn't get far, like Malkeshua. And I wonder if, even in these names, it would have reminded Saul at all. Because God has this habit of doing that. Remember, when Saul turned at being fired, he went and, and as Samuel turned from him, Saul lunged for Samuel and tore his robe. In which Samuel says, in very clear and no uncertain terms, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to a neighbor who's better than you. And the only reason I say that is, Saul had, David and his men, now 600, had fled into a cave in the last 15 years while they've been fleeing from Saul. And the men are hiding in a cave and Saul and his men come and Saul goes into that same cave, but he goes there to go to the toilet. And there, David cuts the corner of his robe unaware, unbeknownst to Saul. Saul leaves the cave and David comes out to the mouth of the cave and Saul is down now before him and he says, and he shows him this piece and I wonder if in that moment Saul remembered when he tore the robe of Samuel and Samuel turned and said, hey, God's torn the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor who's better than you and here is David now holding the corner of Saul's robe. Well, for that sake, it tells us here, that Jonathan, or if you will, Saul's three sons of fall. And verse 3 says, The battle became fierce against Saul. And the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took the sword and he fell on it himself. And then when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell on the sword himself and died with him. Now, don't miss this for a moment. Because what God starts to show us is what happened. Now, it's clear why the armor bearer doesn't kill Saul. The armor bearer doesn't kill him. It tells us here because he was greatly afraid. Do you see that in verse 4? And that's exactly, by the way, if you will, the very reason why Saul said that he actually spared King Agag and the greater stuff. He said, because I was greatly afraid of the people. Interestingly enough, it was the same reason he gave to Samuel when he took the sacrifice into his own hands as well. And he says, well, I greatly feared the Philistines and the people fleeing. It's interesting that the same man who had such a great calling on his life, this amazing calling, but wouldn't consecrate his heart unto God. That was his choice. The calling was God's. Would be led instead by fear. And let me warn you with this. When your eyes are not on the Lord and they're on yourself, Fear will become a primary factor in your life. And if I look at that fear, I see how this kind of sums up his life as well. First of all, he's hit from a distance. Did you notice that? It isn't like, unless you're like Hawkeye, chances are you're going to get hit by someone you don't even know who hit you. 
You get hit by an arrow from who knows where. Saul is clearly hit. And it tells us he was wounded by the archers. He may have been hit more than once. That's the idea of being wounded by the archers. Notice the plural. (coughs) If he was wounded by an archer, I would guess that he got one arrow. What's clear here is he seems to have been shot by more than one. But then he turns to his armor bearer and says, all right, look it. I've got to die with some honor here. You're going to have to kill me because if I stay alive and the Philistines catch me, this is going to get a lot worse. But his armor bearer was too fearful. So Saul winds up instead killing himself. And can I say, this is the life of fear that we live when our eyes are off the Lord. It starts because it could happen to us anywhere. We could get hit from any direction and fear could start taking us. You know what that's like. And usually, by the way, it starts with weird words like, what if? You ever get those? Let's face it, what if is a distant archer. Think it through. Most of the time, it's a distant archer that doesn't even have arrows. How many what ifs ever come to pass? But it doesn't matter. As long as one what if does, that seems to validate the other 400 we've given today. But you notice we never what if in a good way. We don't go, what if today God does something so revolutionary in my life, I'm transformed. What if God does something today and he shows up in such a way that he shows himself strong like scripture tells me he wants to? What if today God saved my mom? What if today that crazy roommate or neighbor or whatever instead turned to the Lord instead of turned to to make my life more miserable or my boss or whatever? We never what if like that. We only what if as if somehow we could live in fear of things we can't even see. And you know why? We forget that the Lord is our refuge. And the righteous in the name of the Lord is our refuge. And we run to him and we're safe. But then it gets to that point where that fear starts to take a hold of us. And as we start living in fear, we start turning to other people and we actually give them permission to abuse us. But when fear finally reaches its final end of its circuit, we find ourselves killing ourselves. What fear does is it puts us in a place where we are the ones with the dagger in our own hands falling upon it. You know that. But can I tell you, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, it says God has not given you the spirit again, or the spirit of fear again, to death. But rather, he's given you the spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. Do you live in fear? If you fear God, in other words, you belong to him and he's the biggest thing on the block. Let's face it, he's the biggest thing there is. Then you'll have nothing else to fear. But if your eyes are off the Lord, you'll fear everything else. Anything that's bigger than you, you'll fear. Let's face it, what you live in fear of is the thing that's anything that's bigger than what your eyes are on. And if your eyes are on you, let's face it, we have a lot to fear. I could scare you. I'm bigger than everyone in this room, I think. And that's not a thing I'm bragging about on the other side of it. I mean, you walk out of this room, who knows who's around a corner. I'm not trying to breed fear. That's an archer, isn't it? Saul's life shows us here. An unconsecrated heart lives in this kind of fear. And he gets to this point where he's still trying to die with some honor. But of course, Jesus told us in Mark 8.35, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Interestingly enough, He's not trying to lose his life the right way here. The armor bearer. Now, what we see then from verse 5 onward, let's face it, by verse 4, Saul's dead. Did you notice that? 
So might I say, if we were to title this particular message, we might call it When Saul Falls. It tells us in verse 5, when his armor bearer, here's the immediate result. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell on his sword and he died with him. Verse 6, and Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men. Did you notice the word all there? All his men died together that same day. The first thing we see is when Saul falls, that all that are under his influence are falling with him. Did you notice? That's his helpers. That's his family. That's those he serves with. It's his friends. They all start to fall with him. Have you seen this? I sure have. And it hurts me and it makes me so angry. When I watch somebody that somewhere down the line has unconsecrated their heart to God and they've played this foolish mindset game where they think that they sin in a vacuum and their sin starts to culminate and surface. And as it starts to surface, you find that those closest to them are all dragged down with them. And you watch beautiful new believers so damaged by somebody, to be honest, that had a fantastic calling on their life, but used it for the wrong. And can I say, God's placed a fantastic calling on your life, and he's calling you to lead. The issue is not whether you're called to lead. The question is, where are you going to go? Because what you do, others will emulate. Do you want other people to look at you and think, yep, you know, they they get drunk, I should get drunk. Or they're promiscuous, so I should get promiscuous. Or, well, they're bitter, angry, and gossipful. Well, then I guess that must be okay. Is that really where we want to be? They're mediocre, so Jesus must be mediocre. Is that really where we want to be? Or do we want to be somebody that is so full on for Jesus that people say, hey, people have more respect for a terrorist than most Christians. You are aware of that, right? Why do you think that is? Because at least most terrorists are sold out to what they're doing. We can agree it's horrible. But it's like Christians are like noodles. You're really not exactly sure where they are and where they're bending to next. Because we're so afraid of stepping on someone's toes. And then what the enemy has done is filled the room full of toes. So you can't go anywhere. Hey, look at the truth is going to offend. And Jesus even said, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Now, I'm not calling you or me to be a giant jerk for Jesus, but I am calling for you to grow a backbone. Christians need to be vertebrae. There's no room for Christian jellyfish. But notice in verse 7, the further results of when Saul falls. So when Saul falls, those around him fall too. Because Saul's a leader. Verse 7 says, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, those who were on the other side of the Jordan, which, by the way, today would be called Jordan, by the way, saw the men of Israel had fled, <coughs> and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their sit- or the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. When Saul falls, not only do those around him fall, but you notice that those who have been influenced him flee the ground God has given them. Notice, God didn't remove that land from them. They left it themselves. And you realize, when you start talking to someone, and you start loving on them, and you tell them about the goodness of God's Word, and you tell them about the power of God's Spirit, and you tell them the power of God's Gospel and God's Spirit to to convict, and they believe these things, 
And then you start to do something and become a murky well and a questionable in our behavior and actions and our determinations and our commitments. And then all of a sudden, they start to drop the ground that they've already gained the moment you fall. But that's not all of it. Verse 8. So what happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa? I remind you, it's a heap of cravings or... And they cut off his head, they stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their estreths, which I remind you is the gods, uh, goddess of pleasure. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bithshan. When Saul falls, not only are those around him falling with him, not only are those who have been influenced them giving up ground that God has given them, but now the enemy finds cause to celebrate. The enemy is equipped with, with Saul's armor, which I don't know what they're going to do with since he's a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. I guess it's a nice decoration. It's a trophy. The enemy celebrates that. And the gods of pleasure are exalted. Did you notice that? Now look, at this should be a warning to us. If you've said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, he's placed a calling on your life. If you haven't, I would like you to know you will have that option to say yes to him tonight. But if you have, and listen, God's placed that calling. The question isn't whether he has a calling on you. The question is, will you actually make the choice to hand your life over to him to be the tool he's called you to be? I want to, and I'd like you to do it with me. But then I look at this amazing image in verse 10. Forgive me for a little bit of the graphic. I'm trying not to get too graphic. It's pretty simple. I mean, let's face it, television's infinitely less graphic or infinitely more graphic than this. But here's what we have. If you were to draw this image on verse 10 of Saul, what would it look like? You tell me. I would go with a headless body nailed to a wall. Would you go with that? Because it tells us they decapitated him. Now, it doesn't tell us what they did with the head, but you could pretty much bet that that's a trophy as well. So he's headless, and his flesh is nailed to the wall. Now, I think that's interesting, of course, for a guy that on three different occasions tried to pin someone else to the wall. You're probably aware of that. Twice was David, once was his own son. So I guess what comes around, goes around, or however that goes. <clears throat> but I think there's something more than that. Because what we see here is a headless flesh nailed to the wall that is the entrance, the welcome wall of Betshan. Hi, welcome to our town. Here is a headless chunk of flesh nailed to the wall. And I think, oh my goodness, there's Saul's icon. This is the summation of Saul's life in an image. Now we're probably aware of the fact, at least prayerfully, some of you, if not all of you here, that in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us that Christ is the head of the body of Christ. That would make sense. The body being his church. He is the head that is important to note. Now, in the context of Ephesians chapter 5, the head means he is the Lord, the boss. 
Nowhere in Scripture, and again, don't just believe me, search the Scripture yourself. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that if you just confess Jesus as your Savior, you're good for eternity. The term that is demanded is the term Lord. And that's very different. Who in their right mind wouldn't want Jesus to be a Savior if for no other reason to bank on the get out of hell free card? Who wouldn't want to say, hey, look, if you're willing to pay for all that, why not say yes? The problem is, is that we have to let Jesus be the Lord of our lives. And that's very different. How much of what's called contemporary Christianity today really shows the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I mean, where he really is the boss. <coughs> and how much of it is really more like Jesus has become our great cosmic bellhop? Like somewhere in it, he's like doing room service. And people say, well, look, at God's whole mission is to keep you happy and healthy and wise and comfortable. And if you have a problem, you just tell Jesus and he'll just be there to fluff up your pillows and put a mint on it. Really? Do you really think that we're going to stand before the Lord of eternity and go, you know, I just wasn't really happy with the way you set my bed. That I could just lay in until you brought me my next thing. He is the Lord of Lords. And it says if we're willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, not Savior, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And I look at Saul and I can't help but think, this man is headless. What he has never had through his entire time was the proper head, which was God over him. He was glad to take, if you will, God's blessings, God's provision. But he wasn't interested in God's supervision, which is a very entire thing altogether. Now, interesting for what it's worth, <clears throat> how many senses does a person have? Hearing, smell, touch, taste, sight. How many do we have? Five, unless you're actually like watching old Bruce Willis films. There's, or, you know, there's only five. Of those five senses, how many are on your head? Sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch. How many of them are on your head? Of the five, how many? Yeah, all five. Seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touch. Now, if you don't think you uh, have this sense of touch on your, on your face, just go like that once and, yep, get, guess what? You have touch, too. Now, if you were to remove your head, how many senses remain? Just one, your sense of feeling. And I find this interesting. When the church steps away from the lordship of Christ, there's only one thing left to be led by, our feeling. And you watch churches. Now, I'm not saying, look, at we're the church or any of that. I'm saying we are part of a church that we should be a difference in. But we're not to be led by our feelings. As a matter of fact, what the Bible tells us is that our feelings lie. He who follows his heart is a fool and that our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. So Disney lies about this one and we really need to follow the Lord. And I've learned this from my years of studying martial arts. When you get the head to turn in a direction, the body will follow. Sooner or later, when the head turns, so does the body. If it's ever going to move again. So what happens when you decapitate the, the head from the body? It is left to its feelings to be guided. Hey, if you can't see or hear and you're trained to get across the hallway, what do you use? You use your hands. 
because we use a sense of feeling. But I think it's interesting that it wasn't just that he was headless, but that his flesh was nailed to the welcome wall. And if you will, Saul was a man not led by the headship of the living God, but by his flesh. You know what's interesting? That God even told us what town this was, didn't he? The town, what is the name of the town that he was nailed to here? Bitshan. Now, some of you may know what the word bet means. What does bet mean? House. Like Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethel means house of God. Like Bethelochim. Bitshan means the house of vanity or the house of ease. Can you see how this becomes the icon of Saul's life? He becomes a man who at this point, his whole thing was no headship, led by the flesh, driven to live at the house of ease or vanity. And if you will, we could say, here lies the insanity of headless religion, lordless living and the vanity of flesh-led existence. <clears throat> now, before we take our last few verses to end this really heartwarming, feel-good chapter, how much of this is me? How much of this is you? At this moment in your life, I'm not asking about the moment when you think this is the greatest moment I was ever a Christian. At this moment in your life, do you know what you're robbing yourself from? How many of you in this room would say you've had a good father? I mean, a, a really good father. Take a look. Okay. Some of you, see, some of you, are, don't be ashamed of that. I think that's a great thing. If my kids were here, I'd hope they'd raise their hands good and high. Isn't it great when you have a father that you know loves you and cares for you and provides for you and protects and delights in you? I would hope that be your father. It's certainly the father I wish to be. You realize Thus lies the headship. And what we rob ourselves from when we declare war against the one who loves us so, if we declare war in pursuit of the very things we rob ourselves from, when we declare war against the one who loves us to care for us, provide for us, protect us, and delight in us. Now look, if you've never had such a father like that, I understand. But if you say yes to the living God, if you say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, then you are adopted and you do have a, you have the, you don't just have a good father, you have the best father who provides for you, protects, and takes pleasure in you. And why would we want to fight that? But to say, hey, you serve me now, sounds insane. And it should. Could you imagine that the icon that typified your entire life was a headless chunk of flesh nailed to a wall at the house of vanity or the house of ease? Do you, are you angry at God when things go a little bit rough? Is if somehow God's whole purpose is to make your life comfortable? You've heard me say it before. God's mission is not to make you comfortable. 
to give you a comfortable life, but rather to be your comfort in this life. That's very different. He doesn't owe you anything but hell. Everything good you get is by grace. Last three verses and we bring this to close. Now when the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and traveled all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. Whoa, did you notice Saul was not the only one nailed to that wall? <clears throat> the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. Do you remember what their names meant? God's grace, generous Father. Who can tell me the last of them? What's that? Free king. Well, that's what God intended Saul to be. As a man who lived in God's grace. A man who knew the generosity of the Father. A man who could live under a king who sets free. Well, thus lies the man who could have been, but wasn't. And yet he lived as a king, but died as a spiritual pauper. But the valiant men arose, traveled all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bitshan, and they came to Yabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Yabesh and fasted seven days. Now, wait a minute. What town were these men from that went and got the bodies? Yabesh Gilead. Oh, can anyone tell me what happened there before? Why would those men, of all men, go and get the bodies of Saul and his sons? Do you remember at the beginning, this was the place where Saul rose and rescued them in his one good chapter. There's a grace in that. That's somewhere in all of that. The one, and here's, if I can give you this one word of encouragement. Though Saul has one good chapter and a handful of bad ones, that doesn't mean that the good chapter ever went to waste. People still were touched and meant by it. Now, a couple, couple quick things before we uh, head into prayer in this. In the Corinthian letters, it tells us that we are to be careful how we build. <coughs> it tells us we can build with hay, wood, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. And he tells us in the end it will be proven by fire. God is seeking to build in our lives and make our lives to be a cathedral. A sanctuary, the temple of the living God. We, like living stones, are being built together for a dwelling place of God. Not just individually. A stone by itself is not remotely as beautiful as when they're placed upon each other as they should to become the edifice that God had desires and designed. And you can choose your building materials. I think that's interesting. God gave you a B&Q voucher, unlimited to choose your own materials. And you can choose that of gold, silver, and precious stones, if you will, faith, righteous actions, or that of haywood and stubble. When those moments when our best intentions really petered out and became something really stupid and selfish. Now, if you're like me, when I first started walking with the Lord, my first thought is I could start with a really great intention. 
the, the thought's really there, and I'm really hoping, oh, yeah, this is it. And then somewhere down the line, I'd get distracted, and it would become more about me and less about the Lord, and I'd be like, oh, the whole thing was ruined. And then I see this image in the Corinthian letters, and I realize so you built with a bit with hay, wood, and stubble. You built a bit with gold and silver and precious stones. Then you built a bit more with hay, wood, and stubble. And you built a bit with gold, silver, and precious stones. And it seems like our life tends to be this thing that vacillates between the building materials. Building's still happening. The question is, what materials are we choosing? Are they done by faith? Are they done in obedience? Or are they done in selfish ambition? But he tells us that in the end, it'll be proven by fire. So what happens to... Hay, wood, and stubble, kindling when the fire comes to it. Burns it all away. What happens to gold, silver, and precious stones when fire comes to it? They're purified. Do you realize the grace of God in that statement? What that tells us is that in the end, when you stand before God, he is going to go, look at this pile of wood. Look at how much you built with foolish things. In the end, you're going to stand before him. And what's going to happen is God's going to go, whoa. And all of a sudden, all of those foolish, ridiculous, selfish actions are burned and blown away. And all that's left is the pile, prayerfully a large one, of gold, silver, and precious stones that you chose to build with. And that's what remains. It isn't God goes, look at this compared to this. All that's left to look at is the gold, silver, and precious stones. Is that not grace? Now let me ask you. Tonight, what if tonight becomes one of those milestone moments where you made the choice tonight? You know, Jesus, yeah, I'm way happy with you being Lord. and I'm sorry, way happy with you being Savior. Way happy with you being Blesser. Way happy with you being the one who just kind of is there to massage me at, at rough moments and to speak tender words at me when I feel a little uncomfortable. But how about tonight we say, you know what, you deserve to be the head. And I am not going to die and let my life be iconically emblemized as a as Ichabod Crane, the headless horseman. By the way, Ichabod, you're maybe aware of means the glory has departed. You know, I don't want to be one of those guys that's like, look at in the end of it all, people look and go, well, look at the body, but there's no head. Let's be honest. The head's even more than just the director. When we have a yearbook at our school, what do they take pictures of? Not your hands, not your feet. It isn't like we can look if we like lined up everyone's feet here and we took pictures of them. I might be able to identify which ones are which because we're unique enough here in this room. I know Haley's are roughly the size of baby feet. I know Daniel's are probably going to be rather hairy. Some of you in here will have darker or lighter skin feet. But it isn't like they're going to be the most identifying feature. But if we took pictures of all of your faces, we would clearly know who was who. Think about how much of your identity is wrapped up in your head. And if Jesus is our head, he's going to be our identity. He's going to be more than just our director. He's going to be our life. That's exactly what Colossians 3 says. Since you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. Put your mind and heart on those things above, where Christ has died and is risen and further is at the right hand of God. And he tells us, by the way, because you died. And your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Is he your life today? Or is he just the lifter of your head? Hey, that's good. 
but it's only part. As we go to prayer, I'm here to let you know that the story of the gospel is more than just Jesus died for your sins. Though it is clearly essential, Jesus did die for your sins and mine. Every human being seems to inherently know that we are sinners. We inherently know we're just not right with God. And the only thing we can either do is change who God is, which makes him an unrighteous judge, or try to figure out a way that we could kind of sneak in on a technicality. But Scripture says that if God's to be righteous, he must punish all wrong. But how does he do that and still love us? Well, God gave us one provision. If somebody perfect, with no guilt, was willing to step in your stead voluntarily, God would allow his provision. He would take your sin upon himself. But God knew that the only one qualified to do that would be himself. And thus, God's own begotten son, only begotten, by the way, monogenes means of his, the only one of his gene pool, if you will, the only one of God's species, which makes Jesus God by virtue of the term, comes to earth, tempted in every way, yet without sin, volunteers to step in your stead and dies on the cross. Now, look, at if you lined up every religious leader and you were going to pick one from the buffet, who would you pick? First of all, I think there's two things we need to ask. First is, who is qualified to pay that price? Only Jesus. He was the only one that's sinless. Do you know even the Quran says that he was sinless, but doesn't say the same of Muhammad? Not that that's, you know, you get it. Not that that's scripture. The Bible made that clear. But second, he was the only one who volunteered. None of these other guys did. Even if they all were real. Jesus is, and he qualified and volunteered. But when he died on the cross, your guilty verdict died with him. But I remind you again, that's half the story. As scripture promised, he was buried. And as scripture promised, on the third day, he rose again. And on the third day, he becomes our resurrected Lord. What that tells us is, though the old life dies, there's a new life to live now. And that new life is under his lordship. There's the point. When we, I remind you, God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And tonight, God would like to exchange your guilty life for his innocent one. The life we live that heads to death, that is spiritually dead, for one that is living and thriving in him. One that we feel like we're free agents when we're not. We're living the life of Saul, headless, trying to crown ourselves when we're not rightly the one for our own throne. And he'd like to exchange that tonight for finally finding rest for your soul under his lordship. But that's the choice you've got to make. Can I say I've made mine? And tonight I just want to say it again because I want to. Tonight we can walk out of here saying, Lord, let my life really the only emblem left, the only icon left is Jesus. Paul would say, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's face it, you can never really say to die is gain if you can't say to live is Christ. Will you pray with me? Father God in heaven, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for walking us through the life of Saul, 
and reminding us again to take careful consideration of his life. Now, will we see him in heaven? I really don't know. And the fact that we don't know tells us that it was a failure. I mean, there are other people I would be absolutely confident that I would see. I want my life to be that. I want the life of every person here to be that. And Lord, I just pray tonight that we would take your own exhortation when you ask, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If we're going to declare you Lord, we've got to follow you. And it's not our will, but yours be done. And we recognize for that to happen, the old us has to die. But that old us was one who stood guilty before you in and of our own flesh. Instead of nailing it to the wall of the house of ease, you want to nail it to the cross where all of our sin was paid for. So tonight in this room, I want to openly declare your payment on my behalf. Jesus, on the cross to pay for my sins, all of my guilt, my faults, my failure, my filth. And in doing so, I declare him as the Lord and Savior of my life. I declare him as the Savior, paying the price at the cross. And as Scripture promised, as he rose again, I declare him my Lord. Give me a hunger for your word that I would know you better and follow you. And I would know your call on my life. Give me a hunger for proper fellowship where I would seek to be around those who love you and really wish to be different from this dead world around me. Show me the beauty of speaking with you in prayer as you give me this relationship with you as you as my Lord. I obviously need to be able to hear you. And show me the power of your word and your spirit as you send me to share your gospel with others, trusting your Holy Spirit, still the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, tonight, here in this room, I make the choice to declare Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Have me now. Make me yours. May my life be emblemized by Jesus as my Lord, Savior, my life as you intend. So here I am, I'm yours. Father in heaven, adopt me as your own, that I would have that Father that loves me, cares for me, provides for me, protects me, and takes pleasure in me. And I recognize the one thing you've asked is for me to say yes, and for that I say yes. So here I am. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer tonight, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers. You've heard our calls. Now bring that to life, now I pray. As the fruit of hearts consecrated unto you. In Jesus' name.